Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 21st day of March, and the year is 2021. Last couple of lectures, um, I went through cytokines, a little bit about their biochemistry and metabolism. And then the last time, yesterday, I spent some time talking about the cell physiology of lymphocyte synthesis and a little bit about what happens in aging relative to T-cell differentiation. Now, those were two primer-type lectures, because as you can probably tell, I'm getting close to putting together this dialectical event ontology of aging in the immune system relative to morbidity and mortality in humans. And so I want to make sure I'm covering all the bases to get back to some of those basics. And you have those fresh in mind when we do the um, video lectures that are going to hopefully be a synthesis of what we've been doing for the last um, couple of months. So today I thought I would revisit some basic bioenergetics. Uh, this is, um, I think, a good time to do it. And so um, that's what we're planning right now. Now, the, the idea that um, energy metabolism has a focus that's around ATP synthesis wasn't always the case. It was something that was uh, had to be arrived at by basic research. So most of the organic molecules that we talk about in biochemistry were first isolated uh, in crude form, then purified to homogeneity, and structural analysis done usually with something like mass spectroscopy after chemical degradation uh, and GC, GC and HPLC fragmentation and separation. And that gave biochemists, uh, it, this is mostly post-World War II when radioisotopes became um, available, gave biochemists an idea of what the biochemical substituents were in metabolism. Then they went to work to determine how degradation and biosynthesis occurred in cells, primarily looking at Escherichia coli, the gram-negative bacterium, because that was the easiest thing to grow, mass-produce, and uh, it was easy also to generate oxytrose and mutants. And because of that, you can do specific interruptions of pathways, and then from that, link the pathway back together by adding back components of the genome that were removed because of mutational analysis. So that advanced us along with the physical chemistry and biophysical uh, properties of living systems. So what I'm going to tell you now is still very, very basic biochemistry. It's what I teach in the first week or two of lectures uh, in an upper undergraduate or in a regular graduate course. So we wouldn't even be going we would probably be discussing it at the level I'm going to do it today. But um, if you're teaching an undergrad biochem course that just supports for getting a degree, say in biology or chemistry, um, this would probably be uh, maxing out on what those people might be uh, offered. I, I don't think I ever really taught any undergraduate biochem courses. I think I did one time, but it was people, students always complain because it was they, they thought it was a graduate biochemistry course, which of course it was because that's what I had been teaching for decades, and um, that's the only way I know how to teach it. So let me tell you something about standard reduction potentials. 
A standard reduction potential is the tendency for a chemical species to be reduced. And it's measured in volts and it's standard conditions, pH 7 and at 25 degrees Celsius. The more positive the potential is the more likely the compound, that, that is the substrate or the reactant, will become reduced. That means electrons will be added to it. So let me give you a couple of standard oxidation reduction potentials. That's called E0 naught prime, and it's in volts. So the reaction acetate plus two protons plus two electrons, making the acid aldehyde, has a standard oxidation reduction potential of minus 0.6 volt. Taking two protons, two electrons, and making hydrogen gas is negative 0.42. Now doing some biochemical reactions, acetoacetate plus two protons and two electrons, making beta-hydroxybutyrate. Uh, of course, it's a freely reversible reaction. All the ones I've mentioned so far are freely reversible. Uh, that's also a reaction, of course, for the interchange of the two ketone bodies. Um, that has a standard oxidation potential, uh, oxidation reduction potential of 0 0.35 uh, volt. Now let's go up all the way to oxaloacetic acid, two protons and two electrons, making malate. That's the that's the malate dehydrogenase reaction, but moving in the in the direction it normally doesn't for TCA cycle. And that has a standard oxidation reduction potential of zero point minus zero point one seven. Now coenzyme Q oxidized plus two electrons, making coenzyme Q reduced. Now we're talking electron transport chain. That is a plus point one standard oxidation reduction potential. Then we're moving up cytochrome B at the ferric iron level in electron, making cytochrome B at the uh, ferrous iron level is going to be. Uh, 0 0.12, then cytochrome C, Fe3 plus plus an electron, going to cytochrome C, Fe2 plus is going to be positive, 0 0.22. And then let's do the final uh, oxidation reduction potential, one that's used as the standard. It's a half uh, molecular oxygen, one half O2 plus two protons plus two electrons going to water. Again, reversible reaction, but moving in that direction, is a positive 0 0.82 volt, okay? So it just gives you an idea of the range of oxidation reduction that occurs in living systems. Pretty tight range, right? So one way to quantify whether a substance is a strong oxidizing agent or a strong reducing agent is to use that oxidation reduction potential, also known simply as redox potential, Strong reducing uh, agents can be said to have a high electron transfer potential. Strong oxidizing agents have a low electron transfer potential. So oxidizing and reducing agents occurs couples with a strong reducing agent coupled with a weak oxidizing agent and, of course, vice versa. Now, since these processes involve the transfer of electrons, the measurement of the resulting charge separation is going to be quantified in volts measured between the couple and a standard hydrogen half cell with one molar hydrogen and one molar at one atmosphere, excuse me, of hydrogen pressure. So the redox potential of the hydrogen is zero at pH zero, but for tabulations a pH seven is used for the hydrogen under those conditions, the redox potential is that negative 0.421 volt. Okay. 
So you get the idea where these uh, numbers come from, how we quantify this. Now, the redox potential of couples that commonly occur in biochemistry will give you insight into the roles in all of those biological, bioenergetic processes we talk about so much in authentic biochemistry. For example, a negative number for that potential indicates a reducing agent where a strong oxidizer will have a positive redox potential. Since the obtainment of useful energy in a biological process generally involves the oxidation of carbohydrate or fatty acid, for example, it follows that a large negative redox potential, like a 0.32 volt for NAD+, suggests a useful role in producing a reduced product, like NADH, H+. So the reduced coenzyme NADH can be oxidized to provide a lot of energy then for biological processes. And indeed, that's what happens in the electron transport chain in the inner mitochondrial membrane. Now, I want to also remind you of some of the potential interactions between fatty acids, amino acids, and the TCA cycle. Remember that oxaloacetic acid and acetylcholine make citrate. And this is all happening within the mitochondria. Now, citrate can be can leave the mitochondria and be used to make fatty acids and prenolipids. That includes all the sterols, right? Citrate moves through the TCA cycle to make alpha-ketoglutarate. That alpha-KG, as we've mentioned very recently, can be used from transamination reactions to generate a lot of amino acids. And of course, from amino acids, you make neurotransmitters, right? like the catecholamines. If alpha-ketoglutarate continues in the TCA cycle to make succinyl-CoA, succinyl-CoA, I did mention this, I think, two lectures ago, can be used to make heme. Heme, of course, and hemoglobin, the prosthetic group, the porphyrin ring structure, but also heme and all the heme-containing proteins, for example, uh, in the electron transport chain. Succinyl-CoA continuing on the TCA cycle to malate. Malate, of course, can be used directly for gluconeogenesis. Um, malate going through the MDH reaction to oxaloacetic acid, of course, can contribute to amino acid biosynthesis. So that just gives you an idea of the anaplerotic nature of the TCA cycle. Again, this is a bioenergetic mini-lecture. Now, we also talked about branch-chain amino acid degradation, and I told you propionyl-CoA uh, can be used to, make, to generate methylmalonyl-CoA, and these are going to be odd-chain fatty acids and branch-chain alpha-keto acid metabolic fates. Propionyl-CoA to methylmalonyl-CoA to succinyl-CoA is the standard route. Alpha-ketoglutarate, of course, in the TCA cycle will also make succinyl-CoA. Succinyl-CoA can make succinate, right? And in so doing, acetoacetate will form acetoacetyl-CoA. That reaction, if you recall, was ketone body utilization. So that's taking a part of the TCA cycle to utilize ketone bodies. And I already told you that succinyl-CoA is used for heme biosynthesis, and that first reaction, of course, generates delta-aminolevulinic acid. Right? And we can just say that that is heme or proto- or porphyrin biosynthesis, just to keep the uh, nomenclature correct. In terms of amino acid catabolism, many amino acids can be converted to pyruvate, pyruvate to acetyl-CoA or oxaloacetic acid, being either through pyruvate or the pyruvate carboxylase reaction. Oxalacetic acid can make aspartate, um, and aspartic acid can make OAA. 
the citrate, as I said before, going to alpha-ketoglutarate and TCA cycle. You can enter the TCA cycle from amino acid metabolism going to glutamic acid, glutamine and glutamic acid. We talked about this. Baleen and isoleucine make propionyl-CoA. They go to succinyl-CoA. Uh, that's more detail of the one I just mentioned, but the branch in amino acid degradation. Some amino acids can be used directly to make fumarate. And of course, as I said before, aspartate goes to oxalacetic acid. So starting to put together now a lot of different potential interactions, right? Now, that enzyme that I talk about a great deal because it's important in bioenergetics because it helps turn the TCA cycle is pyruvate carboxylase. Now, pyruvate carboxylase takes ATP, bicarbonate, and pyruvate and makes oxalacetic acid. So, I want to, you to be aware of the fact that there's a positive allosteric effector for that enzyme. So now we're talking about allostericism. Remember, this is a part of a protein, an allosterose, another solid or another site of the protein that doesn't have anything to do with the catalytic mechanism, but it has to do with how low, usually low molecular mass organic compounds can bind to that protein, that polypeptide, and affect its activity. That is the rate of the reaction. For example, going from hyperbolic kinetics to sigmoidal kinetics, which is what I was talking to you about in terms of uh, the thermodynamics of those reactions of glucokinase versus hexokinase, I'm sure you recall. So anyways, acetyl-CoA, positive allosteric factor for pyruvic carboxylase. Now, this makes what I call biochemical sense because if you have acetyl-CoA generated from pyruvic dehydrogenase already in the mitochondria, and then you have to make oxalacetic acid to start the cycle of the TCA, then obviously you're going to want to have pyruvate synthesized also to OAA. So it can cut both ways, acetyl-CoA or OAA. So it is good biochemical sense for acetyl-CoA, which is the product of the PDH reaction, when it builds up with high enough molar concentration to be a positive allosteric effect for pyruvate carboxylase. Indeed it is. So... More on the regulation of the TCA cycle. Remember that acetyl-CoA also is a negative feedback inhibitor of the pyruvate dehydrogenase, as is NADH, which is one of its ultimate end products because of the TCA cycle and because of pyruvate dehydrogenase sense restrictive. Now, when we talk about isocitrate going to alpha-ketoglutarate, ATP is a negative allosteric effector, and ADP is a positive allosteric effector. Alpha-ketoglutarate going all the way down to succinyl-CoA, NADH, a negative allosteric effector, GTP, negative because that's going to be synthesized in the next reaction, uh, converting succinyl-CoA to succinate, and also succinyl-CoA is feedback inhibiting of its own synthesis, whereas calcium the divalent cation calcium is actually a positive regular of that because of calcium influx during that anabolic phase when the TCA cycle is running to make succinyl-CoA. Okay, so all of this, again, fits into the primer for understanding uh, bioenergetics in the cell. Okay, I'm just now giving you a, a, another taste of it by giving you allostericism. But this all fits in quite well. Now, remember the mitochondrion has an outer membrane and then it has this inner membrane, which is highly uh, convoluted, and it's composed of multiple cisternae, and those cisternae give it a much higher surface area. And the higher surface area allows for multiple protein complexes to reside in that 
cisternal region of the inner mitochondrial membrane and therefore carry out electron transport. You still have something, you have the mitochondrial matrix inside that inner membrane space, and that's where the TCA cycle functions, you see, in those transamination reactions. And, and a lot of those biochemical uh, interactions that allow you to go from alpha keto acid to um, amino acids, and also where beta oxidation of fatty acids occurs, okay? So there's just a lot of things that go on in the mitochondria. I want you to understand that its structure plays a very important role. Now, for an overview of complexes, and I guess I'd call them the, the, the multitude of pathway, that is electron transfer, electron transport, and in mitochondrial electron transport, I, I always tell you there are basically four complexes for ETC, electron transport. Let me tell you them real quickly. Complex one is NADH dehydrogenase. Um, it is the, actually the NADH ubiquinone oxidoreductase complex. So that complex one has NADH dehydrogenase, that enzyme. It has flame and mononucleotide, that cofactor, and it has multiple uh, iron sulfur centers. Now, the ubiquinone pool has UQ plus the reduced form UQH2. Feeding that is complex one and complex two. Complex two is known as the succinate ubiquinone oxidoreductase. And it has, within the complex, the enzyme succinate dehydrogenase, FAD, which is covalently bound, as flavonating dinucleotide, iron sulfur centers, and B-type hemes. Complex three, which is now going to be distal to the ubiquinone pool, is going to be called the ubiquinol QH2 cytochrome C oxidoreductase. And it's going to have the following. It's going to have cytochrome BC1 complex protein. It's going to have two B-type hemes. It's going to have what's known as the risky iron sulfur center. And it's going to have a C-type heme, which is basically cytochrome C1. All that's going to feed electrons into cytochrome C going to complex four. And complex four is just simply called cytochrome C oxidase. And it has within the complex cytochrome A, A3 complex, that is, that's a poly, polypeptide complex, two A-type hemes, and it's going to have copper ions. And that's going to be able to catalyze the reaction at the very end, which is one half oxygen going to water, right? It's going to be the final reduction of molecular oxygen to water. So that I know is a very brief overview. Now, if you look at standard oxidation reduction potentials for those complexes, I can tell you that highly negative is going to be the NAD, NADH, FMN, iron sulfur center complex, that's complex one, and way down in the positive range for oxidation reduction, which we mentioned before, is the molecular oxygen water couple that's down there at the terminal oxidase, right? And all the other um, complexes, one through four, are embedded going down, going from a very negative oxidation reduction potential of about minus four volt, moving all the way to that oxygen potential, which again is about point, 0.8 positive, okay? So you get the idea now, I just put together for you, the electron transport chain and the oxidation reduction potential of those complexes. Because they have those um, metal centers, it works very efficiently in the transfer of electrons. So there's a lot more to say about all of this, but I'm moving fast because I want you to understand um, just the basics of what we're talking about here. Okay? Now, I'm going to mention something about ubiquinol. So you have the Q0 site and the Q1 site. So ubiquinol 
is QH2. Obviously, that's OL, so it's the alcohol, and it's going to be oxidized with a one-electron transfer to an iron sulfur center uh, or an iron sulfur protein, sometimes called, and it's called that, that's referred to as ISP. Now, that's going to send two protons to the intermembrane space, and that's going to form the semiquinone. And so the process is repeated at each Q half site. The cytochromes B, BL and BH will cargo electrons between those Q sites. And there are multiple inhibitors of that Q cycle. That's what I just described to you without giving you a whole lot of detail. And these inhibitors are what will stop or block what is known as respiration. And there are compounds like stigmatellin, antimyosin, uh, mixothiazole, or a couple I can uh, think about right off the top of my head. So this is one of the ways the electron transport chain was dissected by the early biochemists in the 50s by using inhibitors that will inhibit at specific redox states, looking at redox potentials and trying to get inhibitors that would block those particular uh, intermediate sites are allowed for the pathway to be elucidated. Okay. All right. Now, got to check my time here real quick. Oh, we're doing fine. Yeah. All right. So let me move on here. I'm not going to talk too much about heme in this lecture because there's a lot of detail I'd like to do, but there's no time to do it now. So let me talk a little bit more about just this overview of the mitochondrial electron transport system, okay? And so this is going to include now a little bit of discussion of TCA cycle and fatty acid metabolism, okay? So I want you to kind of get this as a, um, a, a picture in your mind. So imagine looking at the mitochondrial electron transport chain and think about those four complexes I just talked about. Think about the uequinone, the CoQ, and the cytochrome C all within the inner membrane. Think about the pathway of electron transport and remember, this is an electrochemical potential that's generated by proton pumping from that inner membrane of space to the area between the two membranes and then pumping those protein, protons back in through the proton pumping ATPase to generate ATP. So remember that the TCA cycle, for example, malate, alpha-ketoglutarate, and isocitrate dehydrogenases are all going to make NADH. And then ADH is going to enter at that complex one site that has the lowest negative, right? The most negative electrochemical potential. And that's going to feed electrons directly into flavin mononucleotide and into four different iron sulfur centers, okay? TCA cycle also has that succinate dehydrogenase, and that's going to feed in because of its redox potential at the level of FAD or flavin adenine dinucleotide. That's going to link up with complex two going directly into the coenzyme Q pool, right? Now, fatty acids are also going to generate fatty acid oxidation and ketone body oxidation are going to end up making, um, sending electrons directly into NADH as complex one and also electrons into FAD directly going into the coenzyme Q pool and again, entering at that level of oxidation, okay? So you get the idea now where TCA cycle, which is going to be running the carbon from, for example, glycolysis or amino acid transamination reactions, running that carbon through, making those alpha keto acids, is going to be running a lot of NADH into that complex one and a little bit of FAD. And fatty acid metabolism is going to do about a 50 50 NADH and FAD 
uh, FADH um, running the electrons into those two uh, nucleotide pathways, right? So that's how you generate then all this electrochemical potential to drive ATP synthesis in the inner mitochondrial membrane, okay? So quick and, quick and clean, you get the idea where I'm coming from, right? All right, so I'm talking about ATP synthesis right now because, again, it's another beautiful, it's what I call a biochemistry movie, right? The movie. Talk about ATP synthesis, a beautiful thing, the way the, the pro protein works in the membrane. I'll go back and talk about that some other time. Right now, I'm just trying to do this really rapid tour through bioenergetics. And you have to also know something about transporting molecules across the inner mitochondrial membrane, right? You've done a lot of work inside the mitochondria, and there's a lot of biochemistry that goes on, on the cytosol, and of course, cytosol is the ER and the Golgi and the nucleus, uh, and the peroxisomes and the endosomes and the whole other, you know, then plus we take the whole series of endomembranous uh, transporting pathways. But a lot of the basic things we just talked about so far this afternoon are coming from mitochondria. So there's a monocarboxylate transporter that will take pyruvate in and hydroxyl uh, OH minus groups out. There's a dicarboxylic acid transporter, which will take phosphate in malate out. Tricarboxylic transporter, which will take malate in citrate out. A phosphate transporter, which will just put phosphate in for ATP synthesis with ADP, right? And it'll also co-transport a proton. So that's a, that's a symporter, right? Then, of course, there's the all-important adenine nucleotide translocase, which will take ATP synthesized in the mitochondrial matrix and synthesizol, and it'll take ADP in. So ADP and PI end up in the inner mitochondrial matrix, and that's obviously necessary for the ATP synthesis reaction from all that reoxidation of NADH and FADH2 through the quinone pool and the complexes that I just mentioned. There's also an aspartate glutamate transporter I mentioned several times, glutamate in, aspartate out, and then there's the malate FT glutamate transporter, which is malate in alpha KG out. Okay, so these are all specific group transporters within the mitochondrial membrane. Okay. So, again, that's a really important thing to keep in mind because this will not occur. This, and the reason you have this uh, zonal um, migration of organic molecules from one interorganellar system to another is to diversify the labor in the cell so that the cell can conduct multiple biochemical pathways while not allowing stray electrons or stray. Um, bioenergetic equivalents to move freely within a free cytoplasm. Because if that occurred, you wouldn't be able to regulate it as well as when you have intramembranous systems. And that's probably why we have the evolution of the eukaryotic cell, because it's much more energy efficient. The, the efficient cause of bioenergetics is much more profound in the eukaryotic cell than it is, of course, in the prokaryotic cell. And that's one of the main reasons for it. It's a division of labor that occurs. Uh, and again, it, it's wrapped up in the fact we have these inter, in, intramembranous spaces in these organelles. Okay, So I only have about a minute left. I'm not sure where else I can really go here with you. Um, perhaps, uh, yeah, I already talked to you about the malate aspartate shuttle and the glycerol phosphate shuttle. In fact, I think that was just yesterday. So I don't think I need to go there. Remember that citrate, when there's a cytosol, can be converted to acetyl-CoA, and that can be used for fatty acid and isoprene. 
biosynthesis for cholesterologenesis. At the same time, you also make oxalacetic acid, which can be gluconeogenic, right? Uh, and that reaction requires reduced coenzyme A and ATP. Within the mitochondria, it's a citrate synthase reaction. So citrate synthase, basically, when you block up all those dehydrogenates in the TCA cycle, because you're no longer requiring more energy for that system, for example, in the, the hepatocyte, what you're doing is then driving triacylglycerol biosynthesis, glycogen biosynthesis, as well as uh, cholesterol biosynthesis, so you can get ready for cell division or you can get ready for transport, then the citrate synthase and the ATP citrate lyase are functioning in a cooperative manner where malate comes into the mitochondria and citrate leaves, and then the oxalacetic acid, as I said, can be utilized for gluconeogenesis. So that's a real brief tour, but hopefully that um, was stunningly uh, um, uh, useful to you. Um, because I really want you to get, I don't want you to forget that we're working within a cellular system, but that all the rules of chemistry, physics, and therefore biochemistry, biophysics, signal transduction, all have to function in a coordinated manner. And so to do that, you have a great deal of subcellular organization, and you have to follow all the redox rules in order for the cell to function correctly. And when you know that, we move, we kick it back up into talking about bioenergetics and say T helper cells, you'll get an idea of why one functions in one way in terms of uh, its utilization to be pro or anti-inflammatory. So Dr. Dan Guerra, come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on this Sunday afternoon, the 21st of March, 2021. And I'm saying bye for now.